0: Today's scripture is from all over the book of Proverbs. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. My son, give me your heart, and let your eyes observe my ways. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give the light to your heart. You may be seated.
1: Thank you. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for the book of Proverbs and for the revelation of your wisdom and truth that we find there. And we ask you that as we sit under your word today and as we consider this important topic of caring for the next generation, Lord, would you help us, strengthen us, and form us into individuals and as a community in a way that we might do that fruitfully to your glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, Parenting from the book of Proverbs is what we're looking at today. Uh, I love being a dad. Uh, My wife and I love being parents, uh, but I would imagine that my kids think it is just as funny that I'm preaching about parenting as my wife thinks it's funny that I teach premarital classes. Um, I would imagine. I asked one of our girls what she thought about me preaching on parenting, and she looked at me and smiled and paused, which tells you she's learned some wisdom. And then she said, well, I turned out all right. I think that's more about the grace of God than anything else, and I also think that's the point. It's about the grace of God more than anything else. The fact is, none of us know what we're doing when we start parenting, and there are no experts here. Uh, but we all need God's wisdom on how to raise kids, and thanks be to God that we find that all over the scriptures in general, and we find that in particular here in the book of Proverbs. And so whether you're an empty nester, or you're parents with kids at home, or you're, maybe you're not a parent, uh, we all share the same goal of modeling a godly life to every kid we know, so raising children truly then becomes a community project, and that's how I want us to consider this today. Uh, you may have noticed this in your own reading of the book of Proverbs, that the whole book is basically advice from parents to a child. It says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Uh, This reoccurs all the way through the book of Proverbs. Chapter after chapter, you see this kind of thing going on. In fact, from Proverbs chapter 1, where it starts there and it says that, it continues on for nine full chapters giving parental instruction to a son. Um, Book of Proverbs ends in chapter 31 with a king giving wisdom that he says he learned from his mom. From chapter 1 to chapter 31, the whole book of Proverbs is talking about what it looks like uh, to... Give wisdom and advice and instruction to a child, to your kids. And so I say all that to say Proverbs is the best parenting book that has ever been written. Uh, if you are a new parent and you're looking to find some parenting resources, uh, we have some listed on the website. You don't have to be a new parent for that. We, we, you just want to get some things uh, in line that you might want to think about and work through. We've got uh, a blog post on the website. It's got some resources for kids broken down by age, and then it's also got uh, resources on parenting. We've even got a series of four articles that are written by Paul and Ruth Fast on parenting teenagers. Uh, Because once your kids are all out of the house, then you become an expert, which is an odd way to do it. (laughs) Um, And they've written on that as really, really helpful stuff. But I say all that to say there is nothing more helpful than the book of Proverbs. It is the best parenting resource you will find. And so I would say, you you would ignore Proverbs to your own peril on this topic. And so what I did this week as I prepared for this was I went through the whole book of Proverbs and I highlighted every direct reference to parenting. And then I took that list and I broke it down into categories. And I know it could be broken down even further. And if I had more time, I'd break it down further than I did. But I think the three categories that we're going to look at today stand out as the three keys to biblical parenting according to the book of Proverbs. It's what I think. We're going to talk about instruct. Discipline and model. Proverbs shows us categorically that we are called to instruct, discipline, and model the gospel for our children. So I think it's important that you see all three of these are verbs. These are all actions. These are all doing words. Um, The word parent is a noun. Uh, To become a parent is actually very simple. I don't want to go into the details. It's not that complicated. Uh, Parent is a noun. Parent is also a verb. And as simple as it sounds, it's important that we highlight that here. You are a parent, and then you have to parent. And it's important that we see there's an intentionality in it. Biblical parenting is about intentionality, and that intentionality takes effort. And if you focus your attention on instructing and disciplining and modeling what it means to be a person in relationship to God and to be a citizen of his kingdom and to be a follower of Jesus and to be a member of Jesus' church, you'll raise great kids who will venture to do great things for the glory of God and the good of his people. And that's the goal, right? Christian parenting has a different goal than parenting that is not grounded in the story of God. Because Christian parenting has the goal of raising kids who don't only grow into maturity in their life, but the highest goal of what we want for our children is for them to grow into maturity in Christ. So we instruct, number one. We instruct. Look at the first verse that you heard read. Verse 8 says, Hear, my son, your father's instructions, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. So these parents are appealing to their kid to listen and obey their instruction and teaching. And they say that the instruction and teaching they are offering to their child are going to be beautifying like a garland or like a crown and a pendant, like a necklace. And it's important we understand that the source of the instruction here is an idealized set of parents who are teaching their child what it means to walk with God. It's important that we see that. You may or may not have had godly parents. You may or may not have had good parents. You may have grown up in complete difficulty or neglect or abuse. I don't know. But when we're talking about parenting and we're talking about the advice of a father and a mother here in Proverbs to their child, we're talking about an idealized view of parent who are teaching what is in line with the rest of Scripture, about how it is to live a wise life before God. We can presume that the parents who are offering the instruction here are doing so, again, out of an idealized relationship with God, all under the authority and the commands of God, and that their instruction lines up with what we see through the rest of the Bible, And the instruction and teaching of godly parents, it says here in chapter 1, is to be an adornment for their children. In that sense, their instruction and teaching are to be worn, that it's visible of what they've done. It's evident to all. And it's what forms part of the child's identity. So childhood and adolescence are about identity formation. One author said, adolescence is the quest for a sense of identity. Adolescence is the quest for a sense of identity. So the father and mother appeal to their child and they say, hear, obey, and do not forsake our instruction and teaching. And and when we read this, it's important that we see that is being said in contrast to other sources of instruction that there are in the world. Proverbs is often about comparison and contrast and it's no different here when they're talking to their son about the way he should live his life. Look at Proverbs chapter one and then notice the verses that come right after what I've already read, verses eight through 11. It says, hear my son, your father's instructions and forsake not your mother's teaching for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, and then it goes on for like nine chapters about all the things that they were saying. okay? You have to notice that this is in contrast. There's an intentionality in the parents being the voice of instruction and teaching over and against the temptations and voices of those who would seek to entice their kids to go a different way. And in our country and in our city, this is not just talking about the classmate who is a bad influence. It's definitely talking about that. That's actually specifically listed here in, in a number of different areas in Proverbs. We're talking about more than that. It's not just the classmate who will lead your kid as a bad influence. It's getting right to the core of even some of the legislation of what it means to be a parent in our country. What it means to be a parent means to be the primary instructor of the identity formation of your children. And that is challenged in a number of ways in the world that we live in. In fact, members of Parliament have been debating in the House of Commons as they discuss Bill C-35 called the Canada Early Learning and Child Care Act. Now, my job is not to stand up here and talk about partisan politics, but it is to ask you if you are aware of the prevailing winds of culture that are actively seeking to usurp the role of parents as the primary instructors about the identity formation of children. Do we notice? It's not the role of the state to raise our children. As parents, we cannot outsource instruction and discipleship of our kids. This isn't about the choices that you need to make about public school or Christian school or home school. We've got all three on our staff, all three among our elders. They're all fine. It's not about the choices that you make there. This is about you owning your place of responsibility as your children's parents, as their primary instructors in life. And this is about us as a community of Jesus followers, together, all caring about the next generation. Your kids are being instructed every minute of every day and you just need to understand this will not end at the end of grade 12. So the school you put them in is a choice that you need to make and you need to make it prayerfully and you need to make it with eyes wide open to the world that we live in. But the question is when they're done there and they go out into the world how are they going to do? So, have you taught them how to discern the truth from the lie in what they're hearing? The other voices in their lives are not neutral. They will always have an agenda. This is not something to be afraid of. This is something to be aware of, because if you're aware of it, then you can disciple your kids into the truth. All the way back in Proverbs, which was written a very long time ago, parents were equipping their children with counter-formational instruction and teaching. It was contrasted against what others would seek to do in terms of leading them into a different direction. And this isn't new. And it's not something you need to fear. You just need to be informed and you need to be intentional. One of the things I hear from parents often is just fear. And you, you can't lead your kids in fear. You can't. It's not about being afraid. It's about being aware. Are you aware of what's being taught in the world that we live in? God calls us to form our kids with a biblical view of the world and we need to equip them with counterformational instruction and teaching that will help them to navigate the complexities of being a minority in a dominant culture that is actively antagonistic toward the Christian faith. So we have to be aware of this. So our instruction in our kids' lives is intentional. Our instruction is also communal. It's also communal. The book of Proverbs, and I would say in fact the whole Bible, presupposes the idea that all of a person's key formational identity is happening, all of that formation is happening within a community, not apart from a community. It's happening within a community, not apart from a community. And and even as we've all had people teach us what it means to follow Jesus— we then are all called to help the next generation understand what it means to live into the biblical story and to receive our identity as those who are in relationship with God. This happens primarily in the home, and it happens secondarily in the church community. And then and only then does it happen in the rest of the culture around us. Now, outside the community of the church, this is often inverted, and that's why I'm talking about it. This is counterformational thinking. Outside of the church, parental authority is being actively challenged. In in fact, the authority of a church would be challenged as well. This is similar to what uh, a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor called the great disembedding. Disembedding, being pulled out of a community. And it's talking about hyper-individualism. And so when you have individualism operating as a worldview... That means our children are being formed to think as individuals, not as a part of a community. They're being taught that their feelings and their heart are to reign supreme, and that anyone who infringes on how they feel is therefore an enemy. This sounds like follow your heart, live your truth, be true to yourself, all the slogans of what we would call expressive individualism. I've talked about this a number of times. I've written an article on it that's on our website. It's fairly lengthy. Uh, If you have a hard time sleeping tonight, you know where to go. It's very important. It's very important because if your children are being taught anywhere and everywhere that they are learning, that they themselves are the sovereign ruler of their life, it is going to be very confrontational when you tell them that's actually not true. But that's the message that's reinforced in the world that we live in. And this kind of disembedding from community, being pulled out to stand as an individual, this kind of disembedded identity formation is actually totally opposite of the parenting program we find in Proverbs. In fact, what Charles Taylor and other philosophers and sociologists would say, when they would argue, is that in the era of time that Proverbs was written, it would have been utterly impossible for a person to understand who they were apart from a community. If you could go back in a time machine, back into the days when Proverbs was being written, and you talk about the importance of individual rights, they would have looked at you cross-eyed and had no idea what you meant. Because life was communal. And it's very important that we understand that we don't stand alone. We stand as part of a community. To be part of a community presupposes some structure and some particular ways of living and behaving. It means that you share a different kind of focus and a different goal in life, which then comes along with a different way of being. And there are expectations on you as a participant in that community to live according to the rule of God. Now, what am I getting at here? Your home, parents, is the primary place of formation for your children. And if you aren't discipling them in Christ through scripture and prayer and worship and discipling them to think biblically and Christianly about the world, I just need you to know it's not going to matter where you send them to school. The home is primary. The home is the primary place. The intentional community of the church is intended to be the embedded setting for their broader formation. The home is primary and the church is the setting for their broader formation. This is where we learn what it means to be human, how to live, what to do, and who we are to then become. And Allison and I thank God regularly that we're not in this alone as parents. There are so many grandparents in the faith. There are so many uncles and aunts in the faith. There are so many brothers and sisters in the faith in the context of this community who can help our kids to learn what it means to follow Jesus. So our instruction is intentional and the assumption of Proverbs is that our instruction is happening within a community. Because the primary work of parenting is this, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Training up your child in the way they should go is not primarily about their career and the material success or their wealth. Okay, Don't pass on your idols. Only some of you think that's cute. That's nice. (laughs) Training them in the way they should go is not about their wealth. It is not about their status. Training them in the way they should go is much more than about getting into the right school or being the best at their sport, or getting the best job. First and foremost, it is about their relationship with God. God has called you to train up your child in the way that he or she should go and the way that they should go is deeper and deeper into relationship with God. Jesus taught this priority as well. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What are all these things? Well, they're the secondary things that don't make very good primary things. When the primary things taken care of, all the other things have a way of working themselves out. The most important thing you can teach your children is how to have a relationship with God. Once that is in place, everything else will work itself out. Your kids are not promised a life free of suffering. I wish I could make that happen. But in the wisdom of God, that is not true. Train them in the way they should go, into a relationship with God now this proverb this this train a child in the way they should go has been misapplied by some as some kind of promise and it's been used to bludgeon people over the you know over their spiritual head over the years it's not a promise it is a truism it is instruction on your responsibility to your children you you can't necessarily affect outcome but your inputs as a parent are important. This is what it's calling you to do in terms of training them in the way they should go and when they're old, they will not depart from it. It's not a promise. It's a truism. The Hebrew word translated train up, it literally means dedicate. Dedicate your kids to Christ. There's a, an American author named Ray Ortland. He said, dedicate your, children to cur- dedicate your child to Christ. Do not raise your child for the American dream. Warn your child against the American dream. It is an easy way to help. Your parental role is to raise your child to be gung-ho for Christ. And I think that's great. This is the why of Christian parenting. And it's the way that Proverbs is pointing to. Train them in the way they should go. This is why. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk with them when you, sit, when, uh, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Translation, everything, everywhere, every day. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the why of Christian parenting. God loves us and has revealed himself to us and he's drawn us into relationship with him and it's the parental responsibility to pass that along to the next generation. It's the why of Christian parenting and it's the way that Proverbs says we instruct our kids in. Proverbs is talking about instructing our children in a whole host of things. Read through the whole book. You'll see just a lot of things that Proverbs is talking about instructing our kids in, things like wisdom and the fear of the Lord and the word of God and justice, friendships and honesty, avoiding sexual temptation, hard work and money, picking a future spouse. Those are just 10 of the things that Proverbs is talking about. There's lots more. But all of it is under the banner of relationship to God. The most important thing you can teach your children is how to relate to God, how to have a relationship with him. When their identity is formed in the gospel of Jesus, then they will understand wisdom and the fear of the Lord and the word of God and justice and friendships and honesty and avoiding sexual temptations and hard work and money and picking a future spouse. And all of the Proverbs is teaching then becomes second nature because it's primarily through the relationship with God that they're understanding what it means to be human. So we introduce our kids to Jesus. We're called to number one, instruct. Number two, called to discipline. Our call is to instruct, and one of the ways that we know how to do that, which is really prominent and all over the book of Proverbs, is discipline. Why discipline? Well, why discipline? Very important question. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen 15 tells us why we need to discipline our kids. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. You know, we have to discipline our kids is because they're full of folly. (laughs) Just like you were when you were a child. Full of folly. Folly is the willful refusal to make moral choices. And again, the morality that we're talking about here is all under the banner of a relationship with God. It's about the biblical understanding of what it means to have a flourishing life and how we can live our lives for God's glory and for our good. That's what we're talking about here. You don't take a biblical morality apart from relationship with God and try and stuff it into someone's head. It's a really good way to repel somebody from Christianity. You start with relationship with God and following that, all of the rest of it starts to make sense. Once upon a time in our world, everyone agreed that children have folly in their heart and that we need to form them to grow up. This would have been a cultural assumption as early as probably 50 years ago. Yes, children are stupid, full of folly, and they do dumb things. That's why we form them into what it means to be a great participant in this human society. And we form them. I don't know that that's agreed upon anymore. We're listening to children a lot. I'm not sure our society agrees that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. The world around us no longer objects to immaturity and folly, which is why we have what sociologists call delayed adolescence. This is 20 somethings and 30 somethings living like they're teenagers, and the sad part of it is I think a lot of it is enabled by fearful parents who have basically blessed it. Christ City, we are not raising children, we are raising adults. I want. Our children to grow up and become adults. We're not raising children. We're raising adults. We don't want to keep them as children. Sometimes parents keep their children as children because they've based their identity on being a parent, not on Christ. Parents, you have to let your kids grow. You have to let them become adults. You have to encourage them, inform them, in fact, intentionally, instructing them to become adults. We all want our kids to grow up and grow into maturity in Christ. And one of the responsibilities that Proverbs shows us that we have been given is to discipline them along the way so that they do so. Proverbs 29, 15, and 17, it says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give you delight to your heart. Now, I'm not advocating for a particular form of discipline. I'm advocating for discipline in general. But too many parents are afraid that if they discipline their children, that their children will reject them. Listen to me. The opposite is true. If you don't discipline them, they will reject you. Proverbs is advocating for the exact opposite of what is feared by some. And the reason that I very clearly see this in Proverbs is in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Listen to what this says. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. The basic logic is this. If the God who is love disciplines those he loves, then parents need to follow his example and discipline those they've been called to parent. God disciplines those he loves, then we do as well. Hebrews chapter 12 picks this up and in fact quotes this passage. It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And this is quoting from Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now we get some commentary on that starting in verse seven. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Stop there for a second. Don't abandon your kids. Don't orphan them and make them illegitimate children. Verse 9 says, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's good stuff. Here's what I want you to hear. This is the way I look at it. Godly discipline is not punitive, it is restorative. We do not punish our kids, we discipline our kids. Think of it like your relationship to God. Does God punish you for your sin? Well, if you reject Jesus, then yes, and that punishment is eternal. But if you're a Christian, if you believe that Christ died as your substitute and that your sins were punished once and for all in his death in your place on the cross, and you believe that Christ has absorbed all of the wrath of God for your sin, I want to ask you do you believe that God is punishing you for your sin? Follower of Jesus in here. Please hear me. Do you think God is punishing you for your sin? If you follow Jesus, his work on the cross is effective for your salvation. He has carried your sin. You have offloaded it and exchanged it with him. He's taken your sin and gifted you his righteousness, which makes you a child of God. Do you think that God is punishing you for your sin? Thank you. I was going to work. I was going to work. I'm working up a sweat. He does not. That would be unjust. Your sin has been punished once and for all in Christ. And when you put your faith in him, you're his child. He disciplines you. He does not punish you. God's discipline of his children is not punitive. It is restorative. The discipline of God is meant to lead you to repentance and back into right relationship with him. It's the same with godly parental discipline. Proverbs 3.11 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So if you love your child as God loves you, you will discipline your child. Undisciplined children grow up to be foolish adults, and the consequences for foolishness in adulthood are much more painful than being disciplined by loving parents. Let me, let me give that one to you one more time. Undisciplined children grow up to be foolish adults, and the consequences of foolishness in adulthood are much more painful than being disciplined by loving parents. But do it out of love. Never out of anger. God disciplines us because he delights in us. That's what it says. He disciplines him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. God disciplines us like a father who delights in his children. We discipline our children because we delight in them and want the best for them. But when we see the best for them... When we see the best in them and they're responding well to instruction and when they accept the godly discipline that we are, we, are, we are bringing to them and they accept it with increasing maturity, I think we should praise them for it. Tell them that you're proud of them. We don't discipline for discipline's sake. We discipline to see growth and maturity. And when we see that, we need to celebrate it with equal measure because the celebration and discipline of a child are two sides of the same coin. We discipline, and when they respond well, we celebrate. We never do it in anger. I'll tell you some of the biggest regrets I have as a father are disciplining in anger because it communicates something that is not true of our Heavenly Father. So, number one, we instruct. We instruct them in the way they should go. Number two, we discipline. We discipline them in love for their good and for God's glory. And number three, we model We model a Christ-centered life that can be emulated. One of the beautifully terrifying things about parenting is knowing full well that your kids are going to learn more from what you do than what you say. It's terrifying. I think what I've said is impeccable. (laughs) What I've done is less so. Model. Proverbs 23, 26 says, My son, give me your heart. And let your eyes observe my ways. When the father says, Give me your heart, he's saying, Trust me. When he says, Let your eyes observe my ways, he's saying, Follow me. Our kids will learn how to trust and follow God through the way that they see us, trust and follow God. They're watching. Woodrow Kroll said godly parenting starts with godly parents. Sounds obvious, but let that sink in for a minute. To a large degree, while your children live in your home, their spirituality will not rise above your spirituality. So are you as a mom or dad intentional in your relationship with God? Do you take time to pray and read the Bible? Do you act in love toward each other and not selfishly? If you're modeling this life in front of your children, you've gone a long way already toward raising up godly children. Maybe you don't have children, but are around them often. Though you may not be their parent, you can still be a godly influence in their life. Proverbs also talks about the environment uh, that your children are being raised in, which is an environment that you as a parent are cultivating. You are like a museum curator, an art curator, putting together a particular kind of environment that your kids are being raised in. Proverbs 14.26 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. In Proverbs, when it talks about the fear of the Lord, that's like a, a reverential awe that leads to a worshiping surrender. That's what Derek Kidner says. He calls it a worshiping surrender. It's a worshipfully surrendering your will to the will of our great God and King who has revealed himself to us that we might know him and how we are called to live. If we fear the Lord, it says we will have a strong confidence in our identity and in our place in the world, and that is wonderful. But what that translates to for a child is the family becoming a place of refuge. Not that the family in and of itself is supposed to be the end refuge, inasmuch as the family is the context for which children can learn that God Himself is our refuge and strength, our very present help in time of need. We create a particular kind of environment for our children. We are not perfect at this, but we can continue to be intentional in our instruction and loving in our discipline. And then aware of the fact that we are modeling something in the term in terms of our relationship with God, the fear of the Lord, our worshiping surrender, that we're creating a refuge for children. The first thing it takes in modeling a Christ-centered life that can be emulated is your presence. Parenting is not about perfection, but it is about presence. Don't aim to be perfect, aim to be present. The only parents I've ever met who think they're perfect are the ones who are pregnant with their first child. (laughs) Right? You ever notice that? Parents who are pregnant with their first child, they know everything about parenting. They've read the books, and it does not seem that complicated. (laughs) But like, about three hours into parenting that child outside of the womb, they're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, exactly. I just, I now patiently wait for that to happen. And then I re-enter into the conversation. We're not perfect. When you live an observable life of following Jesus, what you're doing is modeling what it looks like to grow into maturity in Christ. You have to be present. Practically, modeling a Christ-centered life is the best way to instruct your children in the way that they should go. If you heard all the stuff about instructing earlier on, and you're like, that sounds daunting, don't worry about it. Just be a normal follower of Jesus day by day and let your kids watch you. I know it sounds simple, but what it really all boils down to is spending time with your kids and modeling a life that is lived by God's standards. So I've got a quick list of some ways that you can do that. I've got seven things on here. I had about 15 written down as soon as I started to think about it. I'm sure I could come up with 30, but I'm going to give you seven. It's a good start. Maybe you can email me some that you think should be on here as well. But here are some things that you can do to model a Christ-centered life that is worthy of emulating. Number one, you can show them devotional consistency are you a person who opens the scriptures and spends time in prayer? Two, community participation. What I mean by that is, are you actually part of the church or do you just show up here for 75 minutes a week? Because your kids know the difference. Three, humble repentance. When you sin against your children, do you ask them to forgive you? It's the easiest way of modeling a life that is lived by God's standards and is living deep into the identity we receive in Christ and the, it's modeling what it means to interact with the good news of the gospel, that you've been forgiven. And so when you sin, do you ask them to forgive you? It's not that complicated. It just takes a ton of humility. you got to come before your little children, and you need to say honestly before them, I sinned against you in a specific way. Daddy sinned. I went and talked to God about it, and I know that because of what Jesus has done, I am forgiven. But it's also important that I come to you, and I say that I'm sorry to you too, because I sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? It's one of the most profound things you can do in the life of a child. It teaches them the gospel, because humble repentance leads to number four, gracious forgiveness. When someone sins against you, do you recognize the opportunity to model gracious forgiveness informed by the gospel? Or do you hold it against someone and wish them harm? See, when you sin against them, it's now an opportunity for you to teach them how to forgive. Some kids are more naturally good at it than others, just like some of you are more naturally good at it than others. We get to model this. Number five Others-focused serving. Uh, The first time I said that out loud this morning, I realized how clunky it sounds. I don't really like it, but I don't know how to say that better. (laughs) Others-focused serving. Do you take time within good boundaries, healthy boundaries, to model what it looks like to love and serve others in the name of Jesus? Do your kids catch you doing good things, caring about people? Again, they learn from what you do more than what you say. Number six, uh, Christ-centered desires. L- let, me, let me try to thread the needle very quickly with a question. Um, if I went and asked your kids what they think is most important to you and what they think is the desire of your heart, which is just terrifying, <laughs> what do you think they'd say? Whew. Retirement, house, car. New boss? What's the desire of your heart? (laughs) Christ centered desires. Number seven, eternally oriented life. What is the greatest hope that you have in your life and death? Are you aiming at heaven? Or are you letting the eternal promises of God kind of just pass away? So you can just sort of take the eternal promises of God and put them out of your mind and live a very earthly life. Or you can take the eternal promises of God and grab a hold of them, draw them into your present moment and apply them here, reorienting the way that you live your life so that you're not just chasing worldly success, but eternal life. Part of that, I think, relates to the way that you share the gospel with people. Are you willing to make it awkward to share the good news with somebody? Have they seen you do that? Have you modeled it? Is Christ your greatest hope? Is that clear by the way you live? Man, these are challenging things. I'm so challenged by this. But you need to know as a parent, you're never going to be perfect. As a parent, there will be a point. If you've got little kids right now, you're probably their hero. Don't worry, that'll change. You're not going to be the perfect hero. Your job's to point to Him. So that in moments when you disappoint them greatly, They know how to go and talk to their hero. Called to live a life that models what it looks like to follow Jesus, it just needs to point to him. So we instruct them, we discipline them, we model a Christ-centered life that can be emulated. The fourth point, which deserves an entire sermon on its own, which I told you there's only three, I'm done here. The fourth point is prayer. It deserves a whole sermon. It's not all over the book of Proverbs, but it's all over the Bible. That the greatest gift you can give your kids is prayer for them. It's teaching them how to pray, but also praying for them. I'll tell you, when our kids were little, I learned patience. As they've gotten older, I've learned how to pray. I love being a dad. And I'm, I'm very careful to not stand up here and talk about my kids or my parenting because I want to talk about what the Bible says. Um, but one of the prayers I pray often for them <laughs> Sorry. is that they would know that they can go and close the door and that they can talk to their Father, who is perfect. And I ask God to be the perfect Father to them that I can't be. And that's one of the prayers I pray quite often. Because I want more than anything else for them to follow him, for them to know him, for them to never give up on him, to know that he will never leave them or forsake them. And I think it's the greatest gift we can give our kids. So if you missed the first three things in the last 40 minutes of what I've been talking about, take that one home. Pray for them, cultivate a life of prayer. With that said, let's respond. Let's stand and respond.